of a trendy theme, selfie, and we're putting some trendy themes also behind each Sunday. And so we're just, we're just trying to have some fun with this and, and let loose a little bit and just enjoy each other's company. So one thing we've been doing is we've been having this selfie contest. Okay, you guys send in your selfies and our staff um, judges you. We don't judge you, we judge your picture. And, and we, we pick out the best one from the week. So we picked out one for this week that we thought was really cool and we'll put it on the screen here. This one is Tim. There he is, Tim Peterson in New York City. And I think we picked this one because of the, you know, the cool background. It's just kind of not something you see here. But also, Tim just has a funny face. <laughs> and he made it funnier by making that face that you see up on the screen there. So it's, uh, congratulations to Tim. Is he, he's not here, is he? Uh, he wins nothing anyway. So it's kind of just, just fame and glory for him. Uh, so today we're in part three of our series called Photobomb. And it, it's really cool because the first two weeks have done so much to build up to this point. Uh, Week one, if you remember, if you were here, it was called filter. You know, sometimes when we take a selfie, we need to Photoshop it. We need to filter it so that it looks the way we want it to. And the the, the awesome truth from week one is that when we look at ourselves, God puts a filter on us, and the filter is his son, Jesus. So there's nothing we need to do. God sees us as holy and perfect already. That was week one. And then last week, week two, was, was called action photo, action shot. You know, when we look at ourselves, it's not that we just sit there, but because of God's overflowing grace, uh, we know that we get to respond to that by, by showing our love and appreciation to him. So that was last week. And then finally this week, we get to this uh, topic that we've called photobomb. And I recognize some of you might not know what photobombs are. Maybe all of you do, um, but uh, maybe none of you do. Um, so maybe just throw out a simple definition. What is a photobomb? Well, it's, it's a photo, it's a picture... I'll call on you later. It's a photo or a picture uh, where something is stealing the attention. You know, it's, it's unintended. Something is stealing the attention. It's, it's taking too much attention on one thing. And I'm going to show some examples in, in just a second here on our screen. And for those listening online, maybe you can just Google photo, you know, photobomb and see what, what's out there. Uh, but first of all, photobombs are nothing new. They've been around forever. In fact, what's the, what's the oldest photobomb that we always did back before selfies? There you go, the bunny ears, right? That's, oh, I'm so clever, I'm making bunny ears, haha. And that was the funny thing back then. And photobombs are getting a lot more complex or a lot more creative these days. Let's, let's take a look at a few examples. First of all, remember, photobombs are nothing new. But immediately, when you see this picture, where are your eyes drawn? Thumbs up guy, right? This is an old Civil War picture. I think it's Civil War. Anyway, it's an old picture of soldiers. There's one guy giving me a thumbs up, and the rest of them have this serious look on their faces. So he's kind of photobombing it. He's, he's, he's grabbing the attention for himself. Let's look at another example here. <laughs> okay, a couple uh, sitting by the lake, and there's this rodent standing up right in front of the picture. Um, I'm not sure if this was real or photoshopped or what, but it, it illustri- illustrates the point quite well that, that rodent is, is uh, stealing the attention. Uh, next one. <laughs> this is probably my favorite. You know, two hip teens sitting at a table and then behind them, this, this old grandma giving the peace symbol. And I'm not sure what she's doing. Is she trying to order two of something or I need two spoons, I need two something, I don't know. Uh, but she's definitely stealing the attention there. And then uh, one more, one more. So yeah, here's me in the office taking a selfie like I do every day. <laughs> um, and maybe you can see it doesn't show up too well on this screen, but there's Pastor Ben. Sort of, I'm not, he looks kind of creepy back there, so I'm not sure what he's doing. <laughs> he's checking in on me. <laughs> uh, so those are some examples of, of photobombs. Uh, they, they, they steal the attention. Now, what we're talking about today, obviously, it's not pictures and selfies where 
people are accidentally in the background or doing silly things. We're taking more of a life approach here. We're taking this, this, this idea, this definition of photobombing, and we're t- applying it to your life. When are some times when your glory, your attention is driven somewhere else? Or when you're in life and, and you think you should be receiving attention, you should be receiving glory, but instead someone else shows up in the background or someone else shows up in front of you and they get the attention that you think is due you. Now, now there's all sorts of different ways it's going to apply across the people in this room and so I'm going to take it up a, little, a, a level. And I want to hit a bigger issue than just, you know, the attention that you think you need in school or in your work or whatever. One of the things that you see throughout history is that God photobombs people. He shows up in different places all across the Bible and he puts himself in the picture to steal the attention. And you see it all over the place. There's one example in, in Egypt. Uh, maybe you know the story a little bit. Um, God hardened Pharaoh's heart when Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go. Do you know why he hardened his, his heart? The Bible says the reason he did it was for God's glory, for his glory, for the attention. Uh, do you know why he chose the Israelites to be his people? God clearly says it's for his glory, for his attention. Do you know why he lets people go through hardships and hard times? The Bible clearly says it's for his glory. Do you know why he sent his son to, the, to this world? The Bible clearly says he did this for his glory. He's gathering all this attention. And what I want to do by the end of today is, is figure out why God does that. Why does he like to be the, the center of attention? And what does that teach us about our place in, in his world? And, and to start this off, um, one of the important things, and I kind of mentioned a lot of these already, but this is your first fill-in if you're, if you're following the, the message notes today. History is full of divine photobombs, of God entering the picture and God taking the attention and the glory for himself. In fact, there's one, in my mind, one example in the Bible, one part in history where this happens more clearly than anywhere else. And it happens in John chapter 3, verse 22, which is printed in your service folder. Or if you want to follow your Bible, we're going to be you know, looking at a lot of this context too. But, but here is one example in one place where God deliberately photobombs one of his own. He steps into the picture and he takes all the attention and all the glory on himself. And as we look at this section, it's going to teach us why he does it and how he wants us to react when it happens. Um, it's going to start out here. I'm gonna, uh, we're going to be using the Bible quite a bit today, and if you want to follow along in your Bible or in, on the screen up, up here, that's fine. Uh, but we're in John chapter t- uh, 3, verse 22, and it starts with these two words. After this. And, and as we start with that, what's your question for me? After what? I'm glad you asked. After what? Now, first of all, don't be afraid. We're not going to stop after every two words and, and have this little discussion. We won't get through the section that way. But this is important to answer. You know, after what? And what John the Gospel writer is telling us is that in order to understand the events coming up, you have to know what just happened. So here's what just happened. I'm glad you asked. Here's what just happened. What just happened is John the Baptist has become wildly popular. And that's not that everybody loves him, it's just that everybody knows about him and everyone is curious about him. 
And, and so he's, he's out there, he's teaching people, he's baptizing people, and, and so much so that he's earned this, this nickname, John, the one who baptizes, John the Baptist. In fact, he's become so popular that another guy also comes to see him, a guy whom we call Jesus. And there's a long discussion between the two, we don't need to focus on that now, but basically, John baptizes Jesus of Nazareth. And do you remember what the eyewitnesses remember when they saw that happen? What happened when Jesus came out of the water? Heaven opened. The Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, and God the Father's voice rang out, This is my Son whom I love. And from that point on, John the Baptist knew that this Jesus was someone special. In fact, the next day, Jesus came back. He was walking along uh, where John was. And, you know, John was teaching the people and John was baptizing people. But you know what John the Baptist did in the middle of his sermon? He said, wait, 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 wait. Everyone, hold on, wait. Look. Look, it's, it's Jesus. Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after that day, Jesus went out and he performed miracles that amazed people. And he even confronted their religious leaders, which everybody loved. And they appreciated the way that he started to, you know, unsettle things a little bit. And so Jesus is starting to become this popular person now. So, okay, so you ask the question, after what? That's what happened. Uh, John is wildly popular, but now Jesus is starting to get some attention too. So I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Verse 22, after this, after all that happened, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. And and when I hear that Jesus spent some time with them, my first thought is to say, well, Jesus had a picnic with his disciples. Is Is that kind of what it sounds like? He's spending some time with them. It's quality time. But a better, a better way to translate that, you look at the Greek, a better way to translate it is to, to picture it. They're not just spending time together. They're setting up a shop. They're bunkering down. They're opening up a new campus. They're starting to do things. And, and the, the way that he describes it is that next word. Um, what are they doing while, while they spend time together? They're baptizing. And that's the first hint that there's going to be some tension in this section. The reader, uh, you start to think, wait a minute, John is the one who baptizes. But now Jesus is baptizing. And that's the first hint that there's something that's going to happen here, some, some photobombing that's going on. Verse 23 then. Now John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. So John was so popular, he had to go to a place just because there was lots of water there. That's how many people he was baptizing. And the, there's um, some words on the screen that are in yellow. It's, it's I know near Salim. And you're thinking, that's great. I like yellow words, Pastor Matt. But what does that mean? And maybe, for, you know, for us, this would have made, made sense to the people who read it first. For us, it doesn't mean a lot. So I'm going to put a map up here that shows you this, what, what exactly is going on here. You've got a, a, an orange. I'm sorry, that's not orange. I need to learn my colors. A green dot that's right between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Uh, that green dot represents where Salim is. So that's where John the Baptist was, was working. There's lots of water there. The red dot down there is the Judean countryside near the water where Jesus was probably doing his work. 
uh, Judean countryside in Judea. That would have been more towards the south. Um, anyone know what that yellow dot is then? Any guesses? It's a city. It's the popular one in the Bible. Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem. Um, what was in Jerusalem? Building. Temple. And, and who was running the temple? What was the temple? Who was the temple for? Good. Jews. I didn't hear that. I just had to... Get... <laughs> Jews. Um, and now you think about, okay, John's work is to, you know, he's, he's engaging these people. His work is to find the Jews and, you know, engage them and, and share with them what's about to happen. And now Jesus is setting up his shop right there in Judea. In business terms, what did Jesus have? Three things. Location, location, location. Uh, he was right there. And you, you have to imagine, if any Jew coming from Jerusalem wanted, oh yeah, I've heard about John the Baptist. I'll, I'll go see what he's about. You know, what, what is this crazy guy in camel hair doing? Anytime anyone wanted to go from Jerusalem to go see John the Baptist, who did they have to almost go through first? Jesus. Why would Jesus do that? If John the Baptist really is this messenger of God sent to prepare the way, why would Jesus settle in right there in, in business terms? Why would he steal business? Why would he become a competitor? And maybe at this point, here's where the reader, maybe if you know the New Testament a little bit, here's where you begin to think, well, hold on a minute. Maybe, maybe Jesus did this after John was gone. Because there comes a point in John's life where he gets thrown in prison and you know, he can't do anything. Maybe Jesus did this after John left. You know, that makes the most sense. But, but the gospel writer, John, he said, no, 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 no. Let's be clear here, verse 20, 24. This was before John was put in prison. And what he's doing here is he is pressing to you the significance of what's going on. Jesus is photobombing John. Jesus is setting himself up in such a way that he draws all the attention and all the glory to himself while poor John the Baptist has nobody. And here's where the conflict steps in. We get to the next verse here. Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, we don't know who he was, over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, we don't know what this dispute specifically was, but here's what makes the most sense. You've got this Jew. Where do Jews come from? Where, where do they mostly, you know, if they're doing religious things, they are in Jerusalem, okay? So, so this Jew is coming from Jerusalem, and he's all the way up now by John the Baptist. Who did he have to cross first? Jesus. And so it makes sense. This Jew was traveling along, and he ran into Jesus' disciples, and Jesus' disciples said, hey, come here. We need to tell you something. We need to baptize you. And so maybe this Jew was even baptized. And so he goes on his way, and he keeps going up, and he runs into John's disciples, and John's disciples say, hey, come here, we need to tell you something, we need to baptize you. And this Jew says, wait, 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 wait a minute. I was just down the block, and the other guy is doing the exact same thing. I was already baptized, or I've, I've, I've heard about this baptism thing. Why are you doing two different things? It's at this point that the conflict steps into high gear. You know, the disciples are sort of, want, John's disciples are wondering to themselves, what, what's going on? And so they bring it to their rabbi, their, their leader, John the Baptist. And here's what they um, uh, say to him. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, and pick, you know, see if you can pick up this, what they're saying here. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, 
The one you testified about? Well, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. And as, as you look at what they're saying, what, what name is missing? Jesus. They can't even say his name. Maybe it's because they're in a group setting and they don't want all the other people to hear it. You know, it's kind of bad promotion for your competition. Maybe they don't want to say his name, so, so they're putting it as best they can. Hey, uh, John, um, yeah, don't know how to put this to you, but you know that one guy that was on the, you know, the other side, of, that one guy that you did some stuff for and you sort of said some things about him and, you, you, you know, you, you know that guy? <laughs> well, he's baptizing. He's photobombing us. He's taking the attention away, and the result is everyone is going to him. And these disciples of John, they're so afraid of what John's going to do. You know, how are we going to do? What are we going to do? And in just a minute, I want to show you what John says to them and how he reacts to this news that his business has basically been run, run out on him uh, because of this competition. But before we do that, I just want to apply this to you real quickly and apply one quick truth to you before we move on. And we'll, let's just go ahead and put it on the screen here for our, our second fill-in. God has reasons to divert attention from you. We might not always know the reasons. We might not always be agreeing with the reasons. But when God acknowledges that we are getting attention, maybe we use that Bible word, maybe we're getting glory for something, there are times when there are very good reasons, compelling reasons for him to divert that attention away from you, which means the attention might go to your best friend and you're left in the dark. Or that attention might get diverted to your ex who has custody of the kids now. Or that attention might go to your, your teammate who recently made varsity and left you behind. You know, there's all sorts of different circumstances where God might say, you know what, I have my reasons to divert attention from you. And I think one of the challenging things is, how can we come to grips with that? And how do we react when, when that's the news that God gives us? And to help us understand why, he does it. And then understand what we do in response. The answer that John gives his disciples is going to make the, uh, a, a huge difference in your life as you, as you look at what he's saying. You know, so, so his disciples come to him and, and they say, look, John, that guy, you know, that, the other guy, we're not going to say his name, that guy, he's doing some stuff, he's baptizing people, everyone's going to him. And this is what John says. This is his first response. John said, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. If you want to summarize what his disciples were saying to him, they were saying, John, this guy is stealing the attention. He's stealing business. And John corrects them very quickly. You can't steal anything when it comes to God's kingdom. You can only have what's been given to you. You can only receive what heaven decides to give you. And this is going to be step one to sort of come into grips with the way attention and glory and stuff, you know, comes and goes in our lives. There's one place where there is no competition, and that's here. 
You know, I know that there's sometimes when church A is jealous of church B because church B is growing and church A is decreasing and, you know, there's this jealousy going on and this envy and maybe even some accusations back and forth. But, but you know what? The, at the end of the day, we recognize that where Jesus is made known, that's a win. And inside of this congregation, in this church, there is no competition for who can do it better. <laughs> Uh, if someone is, is, you know, sharing Christ or if someone is doing something to serve him and, and they're succeeding, we say awesome. And if the thing that I'm doing is not so, going so great, I say that's okay. Let someone else have the attention for a while. If you want to destroy your competition in one place, work in the kingdom of God. Work in God's kingdom. Destroy your competition, work for the kingdom. That's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, some people ask, well, what does it mean to be a, a member of Bethlehem? What does it mean to be connected here? And one of our three answers is, find a way to serve. Find a way to work together. Because this is one unique place where we're all working for the same goals and there is no competition over who's better or who's worse. And that's the first point that John made to his disciples. He's, he's getting them to think differently. It's not us versus them. It's not Jesus versus us. We're working under the same heaven. We're working for the same God. And it's not like you can steal something that heaven gave to someone else. Uh, John goes on that he's going to give us some more practical tips on, on what to do when it feels like the attention is stolen from us or taken away from us. He goes on in verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. And... He's saying, from the beginning, guys, I've told you, I'm not the main show. In today's terms, we would say that John the Baptist was the opening act. It was his job to get people warmed up and to get people to understand that there was somebody important coming right after him. And his job was simply to get their attention. And and what do you do when the opening act is done? What, what, What do you do when it's time for the real person to come and take the stage? John's hinting, that time is now coming. The opening act is done. Uh, next verse, he goes on with, with some other illustrations. This, this, this illustration would have, worked, or would have made perfect sense to the people in his day. It'll take a little bit of explanation for us. But John says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the groom. The friend who attends the groom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And the thing that takes a little bit of explaining is that today, if, if you're a best man, that's what we um, uh, understand the word friend to be up there. If you're the best man, what's your job? You only have one job, really, right? Don't lose the ring. <laughs> yeah, keep that ring in your pocket. Make sure it's in a safe place. That's your only job. That's the only thing you do. Back in that day, if you were the equivalent of the best man, you had a lot more purpose. You had a lot more job to do. It was your job to make sure that things were ready. It was your job to make sure that the bride was taken care of and that nothing happened to her and that you were sort of, you were sort of the, the primary servant or the primary helper. And you know, so, so much of getting ready for the wedding, you're there. You're setting things up. You're getting things ready. You're helping the bride. And, and all the while, you understand that once the groom shows up, it's time for you to step aside. As important as your job is as to make sure the bride is happy and ready for the wedding, it's much more important to step aside when the groom comes beside her. And John is saying, look, this is what I am. I'm the friend. I'm the best man. It's my job to get people ready. But I can hear the voice of the groom. 
and he's here. And it's time to celebrate. It's time for me to step aside. And, and, and here's where he really lands the plane finally. Okay, so it's time for you to step aside, John. How's this making you feel? You know, is, it, is this going to, you know, career change? What's going to happen? And here's how he really drives it home for himself. He said, that joy is mine. And it's now complete. Because he can hear the voice of the groom calling people to repentance and telling them the good news that the kingdom is here. This is a complete twist from what his disciples had expected to hear. You know, you're being photobombed, John. The attention is being taken away from you. And John says, awesome. This is why we came. And he's going to give us one more memorable phrase. And if, if you know the Bible at all, you could probably already fill in point four on your, on your sheet here. But he's going to give us one more memorable phrase. It's going to be something that shapes the rest of his life. And this phrase is something that will shape the rest of your life and my life also. And the last verse for today, verse 30, he must become greater and I must become less. That's going to shape the rest of his life and it's going to shape the rest of your life. The words, they make perfect sense the way they are, but maybe to give you another picture, these verbs, greater and less, they were also applied to astronomy in the Greek language. In other words, in order for one star to, to rise from the horizon, what has to happen on the other side of the horizon? Right? They all move together. So if one star rises, another one is fading away. And John says, that's what has to happen for me. He must become greater. I must become less. And now, finally, let's drive this home. What does it look like when this is what guides your life? Um, you know what happened to John the Baptist after he said, he must become greater, I must become less? He became imprisoned. He was, he's, he's captured. He was put in prison. And uh, finally, he was beheaded. That's what it looked like for John the Baptist to, be, to become less. Now, you're not John the Baptist. And your, your job, your role in God's kingdom is a lot different than his is. And yet there is, there is a, a place, there's a way that God would have us become less and have him become greater. But, but it all hinges on this, and this is the most important part here. And here's where if, if like you're counting the different cracks on the ceiling, you know, you're distracted. I was that kid too. But here's, here's the most important part of what we're talking about today. It all hinges on this. Jesus became less so you could become greater. The Son of God emptied himself of everything that he was so that he could fill you up with everything that you were lacking. He made himself less. He made you greater. And, and you know what? He entered your picture not, not as a photo bomb in the background or as some little thing, you know, distracting your attention for a moment. He entered your picture as your groom, as one who stands next to you. And the reason he has to stand next to you is because he's the one, he's the only one who carries your sin and carries your guilt away from you and he dies for it and he defeated death for you. Being some accidental photobomb in the background is nothing God wanted to be in your life. 
At the same time, he didn't just want to have a picture of himself and push you far away. He stood by you, and he stands by you. That's the kind of Savior that you have. And, and that's going to give us a new perspective on what it means that I become less and he becomes greater. As you look at, at your life, you, you look across this room, there's, there's all sorts of different ways we can apply this, you know, becoming less or in him, him becoming greater. But it's, it's all a matter, I think, of, of attitude with which we address our life situations. So what? He's getting more attention than me. How can I, how can my selfie give glory to him? I, I know there's a lot of different situations in life and a lot of different ways that we can look at this. But finally, it, it, the thing that really just applies the, the blanket truth to all of our lives is recognizing that his place next to me is what makes me who I am. That my groom, my savior, my friend is right there. And like I said, you're not a John the Baptist. Your, your place in God's kingdom is, is not the same as his. But he will give you opportunities in your life to say, you know what, it's not my glory. You know what, attention shouldn't be on me. The attention belongs to him. The one who made me who I am. The, the one who gives me a reason to celebrate. And you know what, your celebrations, that's kind of our theme for this, this series also. As you celebrate yourself, the cool thing is you celebrate the glory of God that's reflected through you. You're his light. You're his glory. And that's something to celebrate. Uh, let me close off with a, a prayer for you. Dear Heavenly Father, in your wisdom, you sent your son into this world. And in your love, you had him give his life for us. You gave your life to restore the glory of those who destroyed yours. And in him, we find the reason to give you our praise and thanks. Uh, we simply ask you that from this day forward, you give us wisdom and understanding and strength to, to recognize where we need to become less so that you can become greater. So that in all, we can do uh, the work of your kingdom and so that we can give glory to you in everything we do and say and think. Please be with us and please guide us as we, as we, as we live out our lives of celebration for your glory. And we, uh, as, we, as we close today, we pray all these things in Jesus' name as we also join in the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're to continue by returning.